Hey church, would you get your Bibles and open them to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. And as you're finding that section of the Bible, the question that is elementary and basic, but I think we need to revisit it. Why do people need to be saved? We, you know, we use that word, people need to get saved, or somebody needs to get saved. Why, why do people need to be saved? I mean, isn't it true that basically we're pretty good people, we just need to make some adjustments? I mean, isn't it true that in our heart of hearts, we all really, really want to be good people. We just had some bad parents. Or it's true that I would have been a pretty good person, but I had a bad environment. And I had a bad experience in life, and so it's damaged me. And so a certain amount of crazy behavior should be expected from people like me, right? If I had not been a victim, I would have been uh, probably a monk, I mean, that's the prevailing thought. And if you, if you search your own heart, you probably find that you preach that sermon to yourself. That basically, by and large, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Um, I want to be a good person. And I've always wanted to be a good person from the time I could remember. Um, and so all I need is just a little bit of instruction and a little bit of help and a little bit more education and, and Bible knowledge. And if I can get that, I got this. I would say that's probably the religion of the overwhelming majority of professing Christians. So why do we need to be saved? It's not, I mean, the bad people do for sure. There would be anybody not sitting in my particular seat needs it, right? No, those people, you know, the people in our society that are really the dregs of society, the worst of the worst. I mean, we keep them in prison. I mean, two of them we let out on the weekends here to come to church, I think, but we put them back during the week, yeah. Put them back in the box. So, but you know, uh, those people probably need some kind of real help from Jesus. And uh, they're, surely they're going to hell because they're bad. But as for the rest of us, we love our community. We love dogs. We try to do good things for our school. Uh, we help the boosters for the sports team. Uh, we carry our little baggie around the neighborhood and pick up after our dog. We don't try to be too loud for the next door neighbors so that they don't are, are not disturbed we pick up litter at the park when we see it we don't throw our gum out the window because a bird might eat it what does God want from us I mean what more could he possibly want I, I, I don't argue with my spouse I, I, I come home at night I and I try to set a good example for my kids. I'm family-oriented, family-oriented I am. I love our community, and I'm family-oriented. So people like that don't 
need to be saved. They're good people, right? Yeah. And, and then like these people that do need to be saved, what do they need to be saved from actually? They need to be saved from a destructive lifestyle. They need to be saved from unhappiness. They need to be saved from being a detriment to society, right? They need to be saved from those things. You probably recognize that I'm speaking with some note of sarcasm and tongue-in-cheek, if you know what that means. How does that happen in a sinner's life, though? How, how do they get saved? I mean, if, if there is a heaven and if there is a hell and if there is a, 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 an ultimate and eternal punishment for sinfulness, then how does a sinner escape that? Speaking of those few really bad sinners in the world, but not the rest of us, of course. But those people we're talking about. Not the churchgoers, no. So Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, it, it speaks of being raised to life. That salvation is somehow described as being raised to life. That would imply, at least, logically speaking, that people are in some kind of state of death. And so salvation would be the radical experience and uh, fact of being raised to life. Those are so polar opposite that it's hard to imagine anything that would be more radical, anything that would be more astounding or alarming than to tell people they're dead and they need to be raised to life. That's what salvation really is. So we're looking at Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 7. You realize in this little letter from the Bible, uh, it is written to the local church at Ephesus, but it's intended to be shared among other churches. It's primarily speaking to the saints. It's talking to God's people. Wanting them to understand salvation and how God has caused it and what he does in the lives of sinners so that they will glorify God with all that they've got knowing the condition that they were in and what God has done for them in Christ. But it also gives us sympathy and yet hope for those who are not in Christ, those who do not have Christ as their representative, those who do not have that connected relationship of unity with Jesus so that he would represent them for all of eternity. You see, everybody on the planet is represented by either Adam or Christ. Those two, two heads of two races, Adam or Christ, everybody, first Adam or the second Adam. And so you have a representative that you have to trust in or you have to lean upon. And so those without Christ are leaning upon Adam, that is mere man. Mere humanity, that's where their faith is. And that would be the kind of people that I described earlier, that they have that viewpoint of humanity that, you know, we messed up and ate a piece of fruit, but that's about all we've done wrong. 
the rest of it, we have a few rogues in society that get off track. But for the rest of us, pretty good people, just ask me and I'll tell you. So the Bible here speaks, though, of those people that are in Adam. Those who are not, do, do not have Christ as their eternal representative. What is their condition? And is it possible that their condition is also our condition? So look at this. Verses 1 through 3. These verses talk about the state of all sinners without Christ. Verses 1 through 3. And you... Now, remember the you here is plural, and it's speaking to the church. The church at Ephesus, the professing believers. And you were, past tense, you were dead in trespasses and sins. In which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, one thing of note here is the word all in verse 3. No one escapes that three-letter word. We all once lived all. And at the very beginning, and you, speaking of all these people who are professing followers of Jesus and have evidently experienced salvation, life-giving salvation in Him, you were, you were in this state, dead in trespasses and sins. So, the state of all sinners without Christ, that would be everybody. Who are these sinners? All. Everyone. Each one of us. No one escapes this text. People can make up their own religion to comfort themselves and to soothe their own conscience. But no one escapes this. This is what God will hold us to. We can hold ourselves to a different standard. We can make up our own fantasy about what we think about humanity. But here we have God's anthropology. Here is what God says about humanity. All of us. The whole kit and caboodle. Everyone. The whole crawling nasty state of little slimy humans on this planet. Every one of us. What does he say? Dead in sin. Verse 1. You were dead in trespasses and sins. To be dead means to be incapable. Be incapable of living a life that is devoted to God. Absolutely impossible. A person who is spiritually dead does not have the capacity to obey God. And that person is inactive in doing what pleases God. They live instead... In the sphere of trespasses and sins. You see the word in? That little preposition says they live within that bubble of trespasses and sins. Their whole life is contained in that fishbowl 
of trespasses and sins. They never escape it. Every breath they take is in that atmosphere. Every action, every thought they have is in that bubble of trespasses and sins. Everyone. No one's living outside of that. Everyone's living inside of that. We express it differently. We suppress parts of it differently. We have our own values that are different from others that we live by. And therefore we build a set of values that we keep so that we can protect our pride. Do we not? Still in the realm of trespasses and sins. None of it's Godward. All of it's inward. In a state of trespasses and sins. And God says that person is dead. The dead person's will. The dead person's emotions. The dead person's reasoning. These things are not influenced and controlled by God. They're controlled by a different force. By something else. So it absolutely is not true that people are basically good. And that people just need a little therapy. And that people just need a little direction. And people just need a little encouragement. And a little pat on the head. To to help them just to start doing the right things. The problem is people are dead. Y'all been to a funeral before, haven't you? I've noticed one characteristic about all dead people. They don't do anything. They're incapable. All the cheerleading in the world does not bring them to life. Every once in a while, you know, I just, I just say it. You know, every once in a while we have... An episode in our community in one of those fringe groups who think they're going to pray for somebody and raise them from the dead. I'm still waiting. No. People are dead already. Dead in trespasses. This is the condition that you were in before Christ. This is the condition of those who do not have Christ, those who are outside Christ, and that is everyone until they come to Christ. They're in a place of death. They're dead. This is why you try to explain the gospel to them, they're like, uh, they're dead. You try to talk to them about spiritual things and they start talking about Star Wars. They're dead. I'm not making that up. I've had those. I'm trying to share Jesus with this guy and here's his question. Do you think C-3PO is real? I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm just like, whoa, gee, earth now, come out, you know. But they, they can't, they just can't comprehend it. Does that mean you shouldn't share the gospel? No, you share the gospel as best you can because if the Holy Spirit shows up and raises them from the dead, they're going to believe. But they got to come to life and they can't bring themselves to life. This is why our theology is what it is. Now, many of you want to defend dead people and say, no, no, they can believe. Really? Okay, you need to take a job somewhere to work with dead people for a while. You obviously don't understand death. Death is nothing. It's separation from God. It's separation from His influence, from His work in somebody's heart so that they'll want to do the things of God. No, they're turned over to a different force that we'll look at here presently. But just drive this point home. People are dead in trespasses and sins. This is their condition. 
It's not just an emergency. It's hopeless. It's just absolutely hopeless. Yell the gospel at them. They can't hear you. They're dead. They're wrapped up in the cellophane of trespasses and sins. And nothing gets through it. Nothing. They're also deceived by Satan. This is the state of all sinners without Christ. They're deceived by Satan. Look in verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. They're deceived by Satan. They live. He's speaking of believers here now, followers of Christ. But you used to walk. You used to live this way. How did they used to live? A lifestyle of being deceived by Satan. When it says that they're following the course of this world, what that means is that they're controlled by all the thoughts, all the intentions, all the values of this godless system of humanity. The godless system of humanity is is always propagated upon us. It's always flashed before our eyes through media, through the actions of other people. Through what goes on at your workplace. That's just people following the course of this world. The way that this world is. And so people follow that. And without Christ you did as well. That was your worldview. What does the world say is important? Well in America there's some things that it says are of ultimate importance. Wealth is one of them. Health is another one. How people perceive you is another one. That you're supported by people around you is another one. Looking for affirmation from fellow humans is another one. And we live by these things. We want the stage. We want the spotlight. We want to have the approval and applause of everyone around us. And so we play to the audience of this world. That's the way the world operates. We make movies about those people. We sing songs about those people. Those people are our heroes in our culture. That's what matters to us. And we've come to the place now that someone who's successful in that arena has more authority to speak than someone who's called by God to preach the gospel. That's where we are in America. And we clamor for it. We love it. I mean, we'd walk across burning coals to see some of these people and shake their hand. Why? Because we're addicted to the course of this world. The system of humanity in which it tries to aggrandize itself. It's the Tower of Babel all over again. Well, how does that come to be in our society? The course of this world. Where does it come from? Well, the Bible tells us. Following the prince, the power of the air. This is just a synonym for following the course of this world. It's just, it's saying the same thing again. What? Following the prince of the power of the air. See, you see the parallel there? Following the prince of the power of the air. Satan. His kingdom is built upon these intentions, values of a godless system. Every kingdom has values. What's important to it? And Satan has his values. And what's important to him. And that's the system that he's built. Now I want to encourage you here just a little bit though. The prince of the power of the air. The word air there refers to the lower level of the atmosphere. 
Now it doesn't really talk about, it's not really talking about oxygen and so on and so forth. But if you're thinking in terms of influence over us, Satan is in the lower realms where, where humans are. But there's a realm above him that he cannot touch. Our Savior is Lord of all. He can only operate under the permission of our king and no further. He doesn't control everything in this world. God is a sovereign God. This is not about God versus Satan. That would be like Unionota playing the Browns. Not the same thing at all. So don't. Now Satan's against us. But he's not God's equal. He's not a, remember, he is a created being. God is uncreated. Satan exists according to the sustenance of Christ. He cannot even exist if Christ does not keep him going. But Christ has no needs. He's self-sustaining. Satan doesn't know anything. Unless Christ allows him to know. Christ knows all. Satan can only exert so much power. He's not a being with all power. He's not omnipotent as some people claim he is. He's not in everything. He's not omnipresent. But our Savior is. So he works in the lower realms. He doesn't work as if he's Lord over all so I want to be sure that you understand that some of y'all probably read too many charismatic books on demons and stuff or maybe you got your demonology from Hollywood oh, that's alright if it scares you a little bit it's alright I guess but way way too much credit to Satan some of y'all every time you have an ache or pain you're like Oh, the devil's attacking me. No, he's not. You're just old. <clears throat> not the devil attacking you. I mean, what are you actually doing for the kingdom that would upset him anyway? That's the question. Disobedient in spirit as well. In verse 2, we have state of all sinners without Christ, dead in sin. We've got to hurry up because this is depressing. Deceived by Satan. Then disobedient in spirit. Verse 2, the second half of it says, The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, let me help you with interpretation here. It's, um, it's probably um, likely that if you read that at home, you would probably equate the spirit to Satan. The prince of the power of the air, that is the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And so you would think that the word spirit there refers to Satan. Satan is a spirit being. That is true. He's a fallen angel. So it is true. But grammatically speaking, it is impossible for the word the spirit to refer to the prince of the power of the air. They're two different. The, the grammar will not allow it. Just take my word for that. Okay. So the Greek grammar will not allow that. So it can't be referring to that. So what is it then? It doesn't refer to Satan. What is it? Well, the spirit here is the principle or the power that operates in the unsaved. It's the way of feeling, the way of longing, the way of desiring and deciding. And yes, those tendencies are influenced by Satan. 
But it's this tendency and this way of living that's built into human society. And it is in tune with our godless nature. Sometimes we talk about the spirit of the age. That used to be a term we'd use and, and probably not. But we'd say about somebody, they have a good spirit about them. And what we really mean is kind of like their, their attitude and the, the feeling that they have about something. And so that is always at work as well. The spirit of the age. And we could say the spirit of the age in our day is what? Gender neutrality. Racial hatred. That's the spirit of the age. The animosity among humans. The spirit of the age. People dividing up into political blocks to oppose one another. That's the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age is that man is just a step away from becoming the king of the universe. The spirit of the age. And lots of other things. But you, you see it. You, you, you recognize it. So that's always at work in the sons of disobedience. These people also, before we come to Christ, were dominated by desire. In verse 3 it says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Do you see that? Dominated by desire. If godlessness were not in humans then Satan would have nothing to work with. But as you can see, for each of us, whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Now, the, the word flesh there is not physical body. It doesn't mean that. So don't go out of here whipping your body, thinking you're going to bring it into subjection. You know, that's probably not the issue. Now, some of you, I might recommend it, but... It's not really what it means here. It's talking about our human nature, our depraved and twisted and godless human nature, the nature that's in us that's set, dead set against God. It has passions. It's not passive is the problem with it. This dead nature in us is not passive. It's dead toward God, but it's not dead toward sin. It has passions. It has desires. And so, without Christ, we, that's what guides us. Well, I feel that I should do that. I just really want that. I just, I just feel like I would be complete if I did. I, I just feel like something's missing in my life, and I think I found it. And we live. You hear people talk about that. That's how they're living. There is no guide in their life except that. And that's why they do stupid things. You're like... What made them do that? I thought they were reasonably sane. This. They live in the passions. They live according to the passions of the flesh. They carry out the desires of the body and the mind. They're godless. People are godless. We're all godless without Christ. Every one of us. And we live that way because that's, those are our passions. Do you see? Here's the, here's the issue. If we claim to know Christ and our desires and passions don't start changing then we really don't know him now be sure that you heard exactly what I said if they don't start changing process 
But there should immediately be in you a desire to congregate with the saints and get with God's people. There should immediately be in you a, a curiosity, a desire to know the Word of God. There should be in you a desire to want to please God. It doesn't mean you've got everything straightened out in life. It doesn't mean you've got all sin put to death. It doesn't mean that. But the desire in you has to change. And if that desire is not changing in you, then there's a fundamental problem. You still are living according to the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And if that is the way that you're living, guess what? You're dead. This is plain and simple. You're either alive or you're dead. And dead people, spiritually dead people, live a certain way. There's a practice in their life. And we have to look at ourselves as Christians and say, okay, I'm a professing Christian. What are the practices in my life? What practices need to go? What needs to change? But there's always a desire. You want to change it. You don't want to be the way you are. You don't want to stay the same. You want to progress past what you are. You want God's grace to be at work in your life. And you're willing to do whatever you need to do for that to take place. Now look at the disposition of sinfulness that's in the lives, in our lives without Christ. Look at this. This is important. Verse 3 says, And we're by nature. And if you want to underline the word nature. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What does that tell us about all of mankind? About the nature of mankind. What does it tell us? Well, if we are by nature children of wrath. Where does wrath exist? Where sin exists. God's not wrathful for no reason. He just doesn't go around like, I'm just going to be angry with somebody today. I'm just in a bad mood. His wrath is against sin. Why? Because sin is an attack upon him. Sin is an attack upon all that's good. Sin is an attack upon everything that's godly and right and pure and clean. And God is not going to have it. And so by nature, the issue here is by nature, this is the problem that people in our day just are unwilling to open themselves to this truth. And that is that sinfulness is innate. It's embedded in humans. It's our makeup. It's our nature. Lions have a craving for meat. And that craving, that desire, I don't care how much you're going to tame them, if you don't feed those boys well, they're going to eat you. They have this, And that is the way they're going to act. They're going to hunt. They're going to bring down an antelope. They're going to put their teeth into his neck. And they're going to eat him. Why? Because by nature, that's what they are. What do humans do? By nature, we're sinners. We're going to hunt for sin. We're going to pursue sin. We're going to take sin in. We're going to live in sin. Why? Because our nature craves it. Our nature does not crave God. Our nature does not crave righteousness. 
Our nature does not crave goodness. Our nature does not crave godliness. Our nature craves depravity and sin and corruption. And we feast on it and feed on it like a bunch of hyenas. We love it. That's our nature. This is what God says about humans. You want to know why the world is like it is? We are the problem. Ladies and gentlemen, here's what we have to know about sin. It is a legal problem. And justification matches that. Where someone has to pay the price for our sin. Somebody has to be judged. We have to be judged because of our sinfulness. It's, it's legally right in God's economy that we be judged for our sin. And Christ is in our stead. And so legally he has taken our punishment for us. That's the legal aspect of sin. Sin has to do with being an offender in the criminal system of heaven. But it is more than that. Sin is not only a legal problem, it's a moral problem. It is the very nature and core of humanity. The problem with us is we look at ourselves as apples with a few wormholes. The issue really is we're rotten to the core. And so sin is not only that this legal transaction needs to take place with God. There's an inner moral problem as well that has to be addressed. Too many times we want to get people down the aisle or talk to them somewhere at home and we want to rush them through a prayer because we want the legal transaction done but we don't ever want to address the moral problem. What is wrong with them at the core of their being? And until a person is willing to embrace the core problem of humanity, they can never come to Christ. You don't get to get Jesus as life insurance. He takes the heart or he takes nothing at all. So the Bible here is making it clear to us that sin and sinfulness is in our nature. It is the driving force of our nature. And it cannot be changed by human means. That's what has to be understood. Now then, salvation of sinners is through Christ, though. That's the state of all sinners without Christ. I, I hammer down on that section because it's the most ignored section. That, that, those, those few verses there are the most ignored among people, even among Christians. We don't want to face it. It's just nasty. But truth is painful. It's, it's not easy to hold on to. But there it is. I would encourage you in this way. The sooner that you embrace that about yourself, the further along the road of change you're going to get. If you spend your life fighting that, about yourself you don't ever mature as a Christian 
As a matter of fact, if you're going to resist that from the beginning, you can't ever become a Christian. Becoming a Christian fundamentally requires that we come to a place of helplessness and throw up our hands and say, I can't do it. I can't. I'm dead. I can't do anything to please God. I can't even believe. I can't even do it. And when we come to that place, then a Savior can help us. And look at salvation of sinners through Christ. And, and so here in, in verses 4 and 5. If you grasp the first three verses. These next two words. Will cause you. To sit back. And look up into heaven with tears in your eyes. Because when we find out and realize we're dead in trespasses and sins. We're walking according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. And we're living according to the desires of the flesh. And we're by nature children of wrath. And we come to this word. These two words. But God. Do you see? But God. Not but your therapist. Not but your psychiatrist. Not but your counselor. But God. This is about Him. This book ain't about you. It's about Him. But God. What has He done? Look at this. But God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The salvation of sinners, it's through Christ and Christ alone. Now look at the richness of God's mercy, but God being rich in mercy. The word rich there means inexhaustible, inexhaustible supply. How much mercy does God have? It can't be counted. How willing is God to hold back the punishment that we so richly deserve? How willing is He? How much does He want to hold that back against sinners? His mercy is so rich. It's inexhaustible in supply. Aren't you glad that even as a Christian, His mercy is new every morning? Great is His faithfulness. His mercy just keeps coming and coming and coming and never stops. It's an inexhaustible supply, but what is his motive here? The richness of his mercy. What's his motive? It says, because of the great love with which he loved us. And you know the word love there is agape. It doesn't mean emotionless love. It doesn't mean that. It's not stoic. But it does mean this. That it's driven by the desire to sacrifice self for the good of the object loved. That's what Christian love is too, by the way. And his motive is what? Not your goodness. Not that he was getting some great prize by saving any of us. Not as if God were lonely 
or unfulfilled in some way. No, just his love. His love. This drive in him to sacrifice himself for the good of the object that he loves. That's the reason for mercy and none other. Look at the revelation of God's mercy. Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. How does he show it? He made us alive together with Christ. Now, you understand this, but but let me just state the obvious. You recognize that the death of Christ, that that deals with the penalty of our sin. But you also understand that the resurrection of Christ deals with the power of sin in our lives because in the resurrection, He imparts new life. Buried with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, even so, we should walk in newness of life. You know that from Romans chapter 6. So the resurrection, that power, and so here's what happens. With Jesus, being in Christ means Jesus as our representative. We've thrown our lot in with Christ as our representative. We've changed teams. We don't want Adam to be our representative. He's already messed up. We're going with Christ. And so he is our representative. And so what happens? He goes to the grave as our representative. What does that mean? Our representative has taken sin and buried it in the penalty of it. He's raised from the dead. Our representative is. What does that mean? That he is now alive and he can impart new life to all who follow him. That new life is what overthrows the power of sin in our lives so that our lives actually change. Changed life. Not just a different destination, but an actual transformation of life. That's what Christ does. Now I want to just point out something here too that's too good to pass up. By grace you have been saved. Paul wants to talk about that so bad he can't handle it. So he puts that in there as a marker to remind himself to come back to that in a second. And so he, he's got that. That's like his bookmark. Okay, by grace you've been saved. I'm coming back to that, but let me finish my thought. And so it's, it's kind of parenthetical, but there's something interesting here about the grammar, and, 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 and that is this. By grace you have been saved. And... The the verb here is, and I'm not trying to be technical. This is not about showing off. This is about what the Bible says. It's just the Bible. And and this this verb here, it's it's not, this kind of verb is not used all the time. So when it is used, and you're studying, you need to just perk up and like, okay, take a look at this. Because this verb is in the perfect tense. That's the kind of tense that, that does something. And it means that there's some kind of finished action in the past that has a present consequence that's ongoing. Something happened in the past and it has, and it's a finished work, but it has an ongoing consequence in the presence, in the present, in the right now, in the here and now. So this verb covers past, present, and, and future. You have been saved. The existence of it is reality in the past. You've been saved. Remember all the stuff from the foundation of the world we read in chapter 1 and we're all scratching our heads like, I don't know the difference between predestination, election, all this stuff, but somehow it works. And so we, we look at this. And all of that's in the past and, and that happened as a finished work in the mind of God. Done. 
All he had to do now was play it out through history so we could see it. But, but done. There's no drama in Calvary, y'all. There's no drama. Absolutely, unavoidably going to happen. God's purpose was going to happen. Now, this happens in the past. But because it's in the perfect tense, what that means is that it's a present reality. That you are saved. Not only were you saved, but you are saved. And because of this tense, it means, this verb tense means that it's an ongoing reality. And so you are being saved and you will be saved. What the Bible is trying to say to you and to me is this. If God ever gets you in his grip, you ain't going nowhere. Nowhere. Not because your faith is perfect. Not because you said the prayer right or wrong. But because God is the one who is mighty to save. He's the one that has you. When you start doubting your salvation, when you do that, and it'll happen, don't look at yourself. Look at Him. Look at Him. Now the status of saints in Christ. And look at this. Verse 6. And raised us up with Him. And seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace. In kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The status of the saints. Now the saints, the saints position in Christ. He seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay so think about this. Just a few verses ago we were a corpse. Just a, just a few verses ago. We're just these spiritually worthless, pointless pieces of flesh. Walking around in this world with a defiant, arrogant, God-hating nature. And what has happened now? He has raised us up. What does that mean? That's, he's resurrected us. He's given us life. Notice, it, it, there's, there's not even a hint here of anything that we've done. Have you noticed this? Nothing. The only thing that we've done is all the bad stuff here. But when we get to the salvation part, there's nothing in here that says, and you all did this, and it's great the way you did that, and so therefore you're saved now. No. He raised us up with Him. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He did it. And so here's what happens. These people, which would be us, that have been by the miracle and grace of God brought to Christ in repentance and faith. And he is our representative. And what happens to him has happened to us. What has happened now is these dead people now have dignity. Do you, do you know why there's so much problem with ethnicities in our culture? Everybody's fighting for dignity. They want to be recognized. They want to be respected. They want to be honored. They want to be dignified. I, I understand that motive. I, I get that. The way people carry it out is crazy. But I know what's driving them. But you know what the problem is? They keep looking to their ethnic community to gain dignity. And they keep looking for other ethnicities around them to uh, put on them dignity. Dignity doesn't come from other humans. 
It comes by our relationship to Jesus. How much more dignified do you want to be than to sit on the throne of heaven? What, what, what higher rank do you want? What, what do you want God to do for you? You were dead corpse, now you're a reigning prince. What do you want? God has done this. Then the saints' purpose in Christ. Why has God done it? We've been talking about what God has done. He's seated us in the heavenlies with Christ. But why? Why did he do it? Well, because he felt sorry for people. And, you know, it's always about people. And he knows we've had a hard time here. And, you know, God just, he just wants to populate heaven with people. And he has a purpose for your life. And he wants you to have peace. And he wants you to have joy. And, and, and that's God's purpose is your purpose. You know what? Um, I think sometimes I need a bucket up here because some of that makes me want to barf. We have just, just looking for this therapeutic deism all the time where God is supposed to therapize us over way. And so it's all about me and the inner feelings I have and all of this. Stuff. Why did God save you? He tells us here, take God for what he says. Let's take God for his word. What does he say? So that, that, that's the reason. Why? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What is the reason or purpose for all of this? So that God will be seen as God. Satan exists to try to defame God. Sadly, as Christians, <laughs> we cooperate with Satan so often and defame God. And the logical thing to do would be show yourself to be God and just set fire to it all. God, if, if, if you're God, what you ought to do is just strike a match to it all. And you know what God keeps doing? He's saying grace is going to win. I'm going to show you. Grace will win. This unearned, unending kindness that I keep showing towards sinners. It will win. It doesn't look like it, does it? But it will. Why? What is the purpose? It's his glory. Now, okay, so what do we do with this? Uh, I can't, you know, fire you up with a pregame speech and then not show you where the playing field is, right? That's kind of bad. But, but let's start with this. And, and, and this is not something you get from Tim Klein very often. But let me just ask you this question. How do you feel about what we just looked at? How do you feel about that? You see, if... If, if the heart here is not being affected, then we failed. How do you feel about that? If you are not in Christ, if you're not a devoted follower of Christ, if you're not a believer, if you haven't been saved, whatever word you want to use there, if Christ is not your sole representative and authority in life, 
you ought to feel some sense of alarm. You ought to feel some sense of helplessness. You ought to feel some sense of remorse and regret. You ought to feel some kind of spiritual sickness and even fear. I'm dead in trespasses and sin. I'm by nature child of wrath. If that doesn't rattle your cage, then you're still dead. You ought to feel something. If you're a Christian, I mean, a devoted follower of Jesus, you ought to feel something here. You ought to feel something like, how did I escape? God, why? Why me? Why, Why not my neighbors? Why not the person down the street? Why? Why? I, I don't know. You ought to feel some sense of humility. Whatever good I have done, it's only because of the grace of God that brought me to this place. It ought to give you some compassion for sinners. You ought to feel something for them. You know, it's easy to feel animosity towards sinners, isn't it? It's easy. Because we can look at ourselves as better, so it's easy to, you know. But we ought to feel something. They're dead. If you go to a funeral, you feel something. You ought to feel something. If you don't feel anything, then read it again. I don't know what else to tell you. But if you're not a follower of Christ, you need to trust in Jesus and His work on the cross in your place. You've got to trust that. The only means of legally settling your account in heaven is through Jesus. There's no other way. Christ died for sins. Once for all, the righteous person for the unrighteous ones that He might bring you to God. There's no other way. And so you must trust in His death on the cross in your place. You must embrace that. This is it. There's nothing else. It's all or nothing right here at the cross. I'm pitching it all in at Jesus. No going back. No second guessing. No other way. Just this. Christ died for my sins. He took my judgment. He took my punishment. I'm trusting that God is satisfied. And then this. Trust Him. Trust Christ as the resurrected Lord to impart new life to you as you follow Him. That you are not only getting rid of the burden and debt of sin, but you are also gaining The life of Christ in you, which will revolutionize your thinking. No more being dominated by the course of this world. No more being dominated by the prince of the power of the air. No more being dominated by the desires of the flesh. Will you ever commit any of those again? Yes, you probably will. But no more being dominated by it. There is a new life in you. You're under new management now. Someone has come in and cleaned house. And someone else has the keys to your heart. 
that's what it means to be a Christian. It's not just a transaction on paper. It's an issue of the heart. Will you pray with me? Let's talk to the Lord for a moment. Lord, uh, thank you for giving us your, your word, the Bible. There's no other book like it. Nothing else tells us your thoughts, your desires, your purposes, your plans. Just this book. And Lord, uh, today we have studied it. I'm sure with some mistakes here and there, but we have understood the big truth of what you're telling us. I ask you, Lord, for those who do not yet know Christ as Lord, that you would just squeeze on their heart by the Spirit of God. Help them to feel the need for Jesus. May conviction of their godlessness and sinfulness pierce their hearts. Cause them to be alarmed and cause them to be regretful, remorseful, and even hurt by the fact that they have lived to hurt you. And then, Lord, help them to see that the door is open to the cross. Give them faith to believe on Jesus and trust him as Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that for them today. Lord, for those who are in Christ and are following you, I pray, Father, for a renewed zeal, understanding, appreciation, and thankfulness for salvation in Christ knowing that it's all of you and none of us. Father, may we become truer worshipers, better servants because of what you've done in raising us to life. And we ask and pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name.